0: You are listening to a podcast of the Fleming Foundation. We are an organization pursuing real learning, original scholarship, and thoughtful living in a dying age.
1: Welcome to Christianity and Classical Culture. I'm your host, Stephen Heiner, and with me today is Dr. Thomas Fleming. Dr. Fleming, thanks for joining us. A pleasure as always, Stephen. We're returning back to Virgil. We're returning uh, Well, we're turning to the Aeneid for a deeper dive. You've obviously alluded to it in several episodes across different topics. Why don't you start by reading us a passage from it, Dr. Fleming?
0: All right. Uh, I'm going to read. Uh, start by reading the beginning, the opening lines, as they are mostly published. Arma viramque cano, Troiae qui primus aboris, Italian fattō profugus la vinnia que venit litora. Multa let teris iactatus ed alto, vis superum, sae vae memorem iunonis auidam, multa quoquet multa bello passus dum condere turbem, inferetque deos latio genus Und latinum, Albanique Patres At Qualtai Moenia Romae, And uh, what does all that mean? <laughs> Want to start with Dryden's translation? Yes. All right. I'll read that. And then, Arms of the man I sing, Who forced by fate, And haughty Juno's unrelenting hate, Expelled and exiled, Left the Trojan shore, Long labors both by sea and land he bore, and in the doubtful war before he won the Latian realm and built the destined town, his banished gods restored to rights divine and settled sure succession in his line, from whence the race of Alban fathers come and the long glories of majestic Rome. So uh, that's some beginning. Um, It tells us uh, an enormous amount about what's what's going on, but before doing that, I want to read at least a a, a stand a straightforward English translation of what Virgil probably wrote as his initial beginning. Um, I am he who once tuned my song on a slender reed, then leaving the wo- woodland, constrained the neighboring fields to serve the hud- husbandman. In other words tuned his song on a slender reed means the, uh, the eclogues, his shepherd's poetry, uh, the neighboring, constrain the neighboring fields to serve the husbandman. That's the Georgics. However, grasping a work, welcome to farmers, but now of Mars bristling arms of the man, I sing. So it's, uh, in other words, Virgil, as he hinted near the end of the Georgics, that he was going to embark upon a war celebrating the deeds of Caesar Augustus, uh, had written, uh, I think most people are fairly convinced that these these lines are not just some tacky thing that a later commentator stuck on, but that Virgil must have decided to begin with arms in the man, or maybe maybe his friends who edited the text after Virgil died. You know, Virgil didn't quite finish the work. There are some half lines and unpolished pieces in it, and so he d- gave directions that because it was imperfect, uh, it should be destroyed. Uh, his friends, I think, uh, wisely, having consulted Augustus and Virgil's patron, Maecenas. His friends decided that would be a, a, a great travesty, so um, they uh, they did not. Now it's an interesting beginning. Uh, it go it you know it follows in the tradition of the beginnings of uh, of the Iliad and the Odyssey. Sing goddess, the wrath of Achilles, the disastrous wrath that brought so many sufferings to the Greeks, or the Odyssey, uh, uh, sing muse of the uh, the, the the much. Troubled or or much devising, Odysseus and all he suffered, but here, you know, he makes it clear the subject is not farming, uh, as uh, it had been in the Georgic. His, his subject is arms. Now, arma are not exclusively defensive arms, but there's a, a primary sense that arms are used at least in 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 defensive warfare. It's not a uh if you'd used some word like swords and spears it would have implied he's talking about uh, aggr- uh imperial aggression instead he's talking about arms and a man now of course the wrath of achilles achilles was a man and odysseus uh is even even clearer that it's that the odyssey is a song about a man but this, here the subject is is uh he's not even named you see uh, it's 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 this uh, it, it's this almost abstract portrayal of, of uh, a man who is uh, going to be is going to be forced by the troubles he bears both on sea and land and also troubles in heaven because of the wrath of uh, Juno and of course we, we he has to bring his household gods. To Italy, to Latium, the territory around Rome. These are this is the lar and the Panates, which every Roman house has as a kind of a shrine. And, and Aeneas, our hero, uh, a Trojan prince, who after it manages to escape with some of his people from the uh, from the ruins of, of burning Troy. Um, he uh, it's it's this great image uh, for the for the perfect Roman. He puts his aged father on his shoulder, leads his son by the hand, and he's also somehow carrying uh, with him the the domestic gods of his household. And of course, all of this is sort of implied in the picture. But uh, the the great line, the 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 high the the walls of high Rome, Moenia Romae, and of course Dryden puts it uh, rather poetically, the long glories of majestic Rome. Maybe that's over-translating, but Dryden very beautifully in English captures what will be the theme of the first you know, 80 or 90 lines of this poem, which is that the subject is not just the wanderings of uh, Aeneas and the Trojans. The real point is the destiny of Rome. And uh, it's, it strikes a note uh, that this is a poem about not just one hero, not just some military episodes, not even just a love story that we'll see in book four, but this is the story of, of, of
1: Roman destiny and Roman civilization. Could we argue in a way that he is creating the scriptures, the secular scriptures for the Roman people? I think that's, that's exactly right. It's what I think he thought he was
0: doing. And you know if um, any of our listeners have been, for example, to Rome and they've been to the Pacis, or in an ecclesiastical Arapacis, which is this memorial that uh, near the mausoleum of augustus that that the first emperor the first princeps set up, it shows uh, an idealized picture of what rome's future, what Rome is supposed to be. That is uh, a happy imperial family, people tending their crops, people, processions. It is a masterpiece of uh, of neoclassical art. It's neoclassical because it's been, you know, 400 years since this style of art was popular, but Augustus brought uh, artists from Pergamum, by the way, Pergamum being... Uh, basically this little kingdom in what is now Turkey, which included the ruins of ancient Troy. So this, this, this connection is even there on, on, on that, uh, in, that, in that great monument. And the, the, the classical repose and the exquisite classical beauty of that monument, which is a monument to Augustus' vision, is also the kind of uh, exactly what we have in this poem, that that, that classical uh, and perfect
1: vision of Rome's future. Well, that's the beginning, Dr. Fleming. Where do we go from here?
0: Okay. The, um, let me read it in just a prose version. Tell me, O Muse, The cause wherein thwarted in will or wherefore angered did the queen of heaven drive a man of goodness so wondrous to encounter so many perils to face so many toils can resentment so fierce dwells dwell in a heavenly breast. In other words already as in the Odyssey the question is raised at the beginning of the Odyssey why should this good man Odysseus. Be forced to suffer this way. He has always honored the gods, and in his own funny primitive Greek way, he's he has been true to his moral code. Why do, Why should Odysseus suffer? And here, why is it not just the, the queen of heaven that is Juno? Why is she causing this this uh, great and brave man and good man? Why does he have to suffer? This is the question which is sometimes it's, it's referred to as uh, uh, a theodicy, you know, the to justify God's ways to man. And so Virgil is, in this poem, he's not just going to be talking about Aeneas, not just talking about the Roman destiny, but one of his favorite themes, which we saw in the Georgics. Why is this world such a hard place to live in? Uh, why do we suffer so much? And is there is there justice? Is there is there justice in heaven? It's the it's the subject raised by the Book of Job. It's the subject raised by uh, the, uh, Aeschylus in uh, in the Prometheus Bound. And so uh, so the, in in this double opening, it's only like eleven lines. Uh, we we have a program for this work. This majestic and beautifully constructed work in twelve books. Today we're only talking about the first book, and we're not going to go too much into histor into the historical circumstances. We're just plunging in, and and Virgil plunges in immediately immediately in Medias race, which uh, which Aristotle recommends in that a poem. He said, you know, there's some people who tell the Trojan War beginning with the uh, the egg that Leto laid when she was uh, impregnated by Zeus in the form of a swan. You know, and instead, I mean, great epic poems begin in the middle. And so that's why in this poem, you know, the first book we see right in the present, but then books two and three uh, go backwards and, and tell us a story. So it's, but instead of going and plunging immediately into the story of the uh, in, of Aeneas and Rome, instead we hear about an ancient city, the home of Tyrian settlers. Now Tyre, of course, is uh, this great Phoenician walled city on an island in, off modern Lebanon. It was a very powerful Phoenician city and when they had domestic problems and a revolution, at least according to tradition, uh, Tyrian settlers were led by their queen Dido, came to the North Africa to form uh, to 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 create a new city, Carthage, and of course Carthage will grow up to be uh, Rome's great enemy, and so we get that like in the in the first like the the, the, the first fifteen twenty lines. So Carthage uh, is it comes in in this story. Carthage comes before Rome, and. Juno one of the reasons she's angry with Aeneas not only because she was generically you know on the side of the Greeks against the Trojans but she's also angry because Carthage is one of her favorite cities she has certain towns that she likes on various Greek islands that worship her or Argos on the mainland but her favorite city where we're told is this new town of Carthage which will be devoted to her and uh, actually, we obviously the Phoenicians had their own gods, and they were pretty bloody gods as we as we know, uh, demanding human sacrifice on a regular basis. And we've talked a little bit about that in the past. Um, so her resentment is toward the future because she knows there's a prophecy, that Rome will someday destroy her beloved Carthage, and so every so the the we've got two balls in the air now the Ro- the Roman destiny, but now also uh, Carthage is built up now as 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 the enemy that Rome must uh, defeat and destroy. So this is already a hint at at what one of the things Virgil's getting at, because you know in the Georgics. He makes it clear that to, that uh, that great accomplishments, the great beauty and work of civilization, that he celebrates in the form of the farmer, that uh, in the this is not a, this is not brought about without labor, without risk, without pain, that primitive man lives in a kind of golden age where you know their cattle their their pigs eat the acorns on the ground and people pluck it's like the garden of eden you don't have to do any work unfortunately in virgil's view that means you don't go anywhere so jupiter in his infinite wisdom and kindness has made us in such a way that we have to we have to suffer and, and suffer and work hard, and through suffering and work, we then create uh, the, the glories of civilization. And uh, so great accomplishment requires labor. And of course, labor is an evil word for the Romans. They like, they like leisure. We, th- we, for us, uh, our, our leisure time is what we have left over from working nine to five. For the Romans, they viewed it the opposite. Business negotium as they say, business was the absence of the positive quality of leisure, so they, they, they had a very, they didn't have a Calvinistic view of this, to put it mildly and so this is but so in, in, only, in only just a few lines we we've got some of these uh, these uh, subjects so we, we see uh, the Trojans are at sea. They're trying to go from uh, Sicily, where they were warmly welcomed by a, another Trojan exile, and we'll get that story at the end of book three. And they set out to sea, and to, to go to uh, what will eventually be uh, the future site of Rome, or that is to, to lots, modern Lazio, Latium. But Hera, I'm sorry, Juno, we'll give her her proper uh, Latin title, um, Juno arouses a storm. She persuades the god of the winds to do something he's not supposed to do, to defy the authority of Neptune, who has nothing against the Trojans, because Neptune, uh, or the Greek Poseidon, had been pro-Trojan during the Trojan War. So she, per- she pro- makes a promise to uh, the wind god, and there's this terrible storm, and the winds are blowing at cross-purposes, and uh, it's it's a uh, because she says, "Am I the only one who can't have my way?" I mean, she she's really a, a magnificent portrait of an of an angry, <clears throat> resentful, outraged woman who whose whose beauty has been spurned, as it was when Paris made the mistake of giving the uh, <clears throat> the award, uh, you know, the the apple, to, which was supposed to be given to the goddess who was the fairest, and instead of giving it to Juno he gives it to uh venus because she promises him uh the most beautiful woman in the world for his wife so we have so at the very beginning of the work dramatically we have this terrible storm that uh and and it's it's winter it's all the different winds blowing from different parts of of heaven the and the Storm is, uh, and at the height of the storm, Aeneas makes his entrance on the dramatic stage, and it's a very strange entrance for a hero to make. He says, "I wish I had died at Troy with my family, and my friends." And instead, after going through all of this misery of escaping from Troy, and we've we've had one adventure after another. Now we're going to die in a storm at sea. Better we had never gone through this. Now this is not exactly what you would regard as either inspired leadership, nor is it the kind of heroism we, we used to expect. Odysseus doesn't act like this. Achilles doesn't act like this. None of the Greek heroes. So it, it is. we see Aeneas is someone who is still mourning the law. He has nothing to go back to. He has, He has only... He has no home, Un- unlike Odysseus, who is, ha- who is returning to his wife and his son and his father and his home. Aeneas has no home except whatever he might aco- whatever he might build in a shadowy future. He doesn't understand. Now, um, meanwhile, though, just as it you know looks like the Trojans are going to be completely swamped, and, uh, Neptune. Uh, appears and and is very angry with the winds, and he he, um, he uh, calms the storm, and everything goes back to to normal, and uh, and there's a wonderful uh, passage, in which uh, it's described. It's like when there's a street riot. And, and believe this is something which everybody in Italy knows a lot about, including in the the, the long period of civil wars that preceded uh, the 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 Augustan peace. So, in a street riot, and and people grab whatever weapons are at hand and are throwing rocks and bottles and whatever, and it complete chaos. But if a a statesman-like man of dignity appears on the scene, he calms the passions and restores order. And this is what Neptune does to the storm. But it is obviously, by using this metaphor, any intelligent Roman reader no matter what side he's on, we'll see immediately that Virgil is referring to his friend and patron, the the real founder of the Roman Empire, Augustus. Because Augustus you know, defeated Antony in a civil war and defe- and def- defeated them uh, first, the, the uh, his enemy armies in Italy, and then, of course, uh, uh, off the coast of Greece at the Battle of Actium. And so uh, Augustus is, therefore, like Neptune, and he's calmed the, the, the madness and rage of civil strife.
1: Now, obviously, Virgil wasn't thinking of uh, the scene that most Christians think of when we think of a boat and a man and the waters calming down. But it's hard not to see that correlation. Uh, uh, you're, yeah, for no, you're, you're right, because there is something, you know, there's a
0: reason why, uh, there are many reasons why early Christians uh, adopted Virgil, they knew he wasn't a Christian. They couldn't make up a they couldn't make up a myth that he was, but they thought he had the kind of status as a pagan prophet who predicted the coming of Christ in the in his fourth eclogue, but also uh, August uh, the the values that that he exemplifies throughout this work of of self control, of kindness, of charity. Of justice and mercy, these are all qualities which the early Christians and Christians today uh, un- understand very well. And so, although it's obviously quite different for for um, for Virgil, uh, salvation on this earth, uh, earthly salvation, <clears throat> is brought about by the establishment of the empire. For Christians, it's the it's the kingdom of God. By, but by the way, it is very helpful, I think, for Christians to understand basic meanings. Like we, we use theological terms, especially uh, I think uh, Catholics tend to use these terms as uh, they're sort of like counters in a game. they're little pieces. And so we say salvational. Well, what does salvation mean? Uh, and uh, the Greek is soteria. Uh, it means it means being safe, sound, whole. Healthy, sane, in 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 simple physical terms, a, the save, the political leaders who were called saviors were the people who defended their country, put down civil wars, put down foreign aggression, and allowed their people to live in peace. And that is surely a, a kind of earthly, terrestrial uh, equivalent of uh, of the salvation that Christians expect to find in the kingdom of God, something that is permanent. We know Virgil, by the way, believed in an afterlife in which there would be justice uh, meted out. And so his vision, his vision is not at all incompatible with a, uh, a Christian vision, which is, of course, one of the reasons why he is Dante's guide in the greatest single work of Christian imaginative literature, namely Dante's Dante's Comedy, the Commedia. So the storm's been calmed.
1: Where to now, Dr. Fleming?
0: Well, the shattered uh, Trojan uh, Trojans, uh, they are. Uh, they seek land, and of course, they're, they're they're shipwrecked. The ships have been driven apart. Uh Aeneas, now that he's no longer overcome by g- grief over the past, he shows, and, and, and the nostalgia, which is one of his dominant characteristics in these early books. Uh, nostalgia, by the way, is a Greek term, which literally means a, the pain and sorrow that you get longing for going back, to, for returning. Um, he proves to be uh, an effective leader. And and this is an important aspect. This is only this is his desire for death in the storm is a momentary lapse, and we won't we'll see him sad much of the time. Very uncharacteristically sad for a hero. I mean, Greek heroes are are either happy or angry, but they're not they're they're not they're not, they're not subject to these complex uh, uh, psychic states which we understand. You know, and and everyone since Virgil has understood this work. So uh, Aeneas sets forth to uh, to uh, he's got to take care of his people. And in Dryden, we hear him say, "He set abroad and for the feast prepared in equal portions with the venison shared." By the way, that used to be the only correct uh, pronunciation of uh, of what or we venison. mostly call venison. Yeah.
1: Venson, okay.
0: Venzen, yeah. And by the way, in uh, in uh, in South Carolina, the country people still say Vinson. Um So, with cheerful words, allayed the common grief. So, in other words, he knows it's his role as leader to cheer them up, no matter how he feels. And in fact, he he dissembles. Virgil says very clearly, "This is not what he felt in his heart," but he says, "Endure and conquer." Jove will soon dispose to future good our past and present woes. With me, the rocks of Scylla you have tried. These are the the clashing rocks. Uh, The inhuman Cyclops and his den defied. What greater ills hereafter can you bear? Resume your courage and dismiss your care. An hour will come with pleasure to relate your sorrows past as benefits of fate. Now this is a... um, a typically uh one of the one of the great lines in in uh in all of Virgil and that is someday we shall actually it will be a pleasure to talk over things when twenty years from now we'll look back. And we we may not laugh at our sufferings, but we will have pleasure from contemplating our suffering and the happiness that issued out of it. Again, this is a personal, intimate kind of touch, which um, which we're not used to. Uh, as he says, "Nequenim ignari sumus ante malorum," for we are not ignorant of 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 miseries that we have suffered before, and he says, For sonnet haik olim you wabit in, in very simple Virgilian language, much simpler than, than, than Dryden, maybe even these things at some time it will give us pleasure and help to recall. And this is uh, so that our unhappiness will mellow into, a, into nostalgic reflection, and it also suggests something which we're going to see uh, over and over in the poem, but especially in the first uh, in books one and four, that art itself, that is the arts of sculpture and poetry, to be specific, art by, by allows us to have this experience of of making sense of our lives, making sense of our past. And uh, and deriving some pleasure out of our, our conquest of uh, of, of uh, miseries and perils, it is again I, I, I can't I can't overemphasize how strange this is compared to uh, earlier epic the the emphasis on feeling the emphasis on character and the emphasis on the complexity of feeling. Because we know that this is not really wh- how uh, Aeneas is feeling. What we know is that he's extremely unhappy, and he feels that, you know, that whatever mission he's been given to found some new home, he doesn't know where it's going to be. He knows nothing about it, and so. But nonetheless, he does what a leader has to do.
1: It is I, obviously in our society in which you know we say we have no regrets and, and we don't wish to ponder our <laughs> sorrows. Uh, the idea of of thinking back on these things uh, must be repugnant.
0: Yeah, you know they say, uh, was it Scott Fitzgerald who said, uh, uh America's a country where there are where there are no second acts." Well, uh, actually, I think Fitzgerald. I know I know what he was getting at, but but the. the I, that with our worship of success, etc., and we're simple-minded. In fact, America is nothing but full of people who reinvent themselves day after day. You uh, you get caught in bank fraud in New York City, and with with a couple of mistresses, your wife divorces you, takes you to the cleaners, you go to jail for two years, you get out and go to California, and you start all over again. Right. And uh, that, that's the true American way that we have that we, we don't have any uh, any feeling of, uh, of responsibility or any feeling of continuity and you know there are these incredible criminals who will turn up living in Minnesota after, after a life of crime and deceit but, but, but and, and their neighbors can't understand why uh, how this person could have been a criminal mm-hmm. So the uh we move on, obviously we're not going to uh talk about every uh scene in Book one, but there are several that are, are quite important. You know, Jupiter and Venus have a have a little meeting of minds, and it recalls the opening of the Odyssey where uh Athena asks Zeus, "Why does Odysseus have to suffer It's unfair. And Zeus explains, well, people bring this on themselves. You know, we try to warn them that uh, uh, as we warned Aegisthus, the cousin of Agamemnon, you shouldn't, uh, you shouldn't sleep with your cousin's wife and you shouldn't go and try to kill him and do all these evil things because you're going to come to a bad end. And he says, then, of course, Aegisthus blames us. Well, this is a, it's a, a practical peasant wisdom in, embodied in that. Here, um, that we we have a similar discussion. Why why is Odysseus suffering? What what's in few? What's in store for him? And um the it's interesting because this is very it is very reminiscent of the Odyssey, and most literary scholars would say that the first four books of the Iliad are very carefully uh modeled on scenes from the Odyssey which he which he transforms. Unfortunately, you know, Virgil's Habit of imitation that is of taking from not just from Homer but from Apollonius Argonautica, uh, the, sto- the where there's a love story between Jason and Medea, which we'll talk about in a in a future episode uh, as a as a model for for the Aeneid. Um, because of this, uh, romantic writers of the 19th century dismissed Virgil as nothing but a third-rate imitator of Homer. And what they don't understand is the incredible art and, and, and sophistication it took to, to weave these themes together with an absolutely different style, much more everyday language, simple language throughout the Aeneid, to weave them together to, to, to make a completely new work with a new emphasis, with new feelings, with new concentration. And so uh, even though we can refer to this part as re- as a reference back to the Odyssey or a reference to the Iliad, um, it, 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 to overemphasize that is really uh, to mistake state. So, Jupiter tells his daughter Venus that he says, No, I have searched the mystic rolls of fate. Thy son, nor is the appointed season far, in Italy shall wage successful war, shall tame fierce nations of the bloody field, and sovereign laws impose, and cities build, till after every foe subdued, the sun thrice through the signs, that is through the signs of the zodiac, his annual race will run. So here we see Jupiter said, "Don't worry, uh, th- things are going to come out right in the end, even though uh, it is, uh, even though it's, uh, it's going to, t- it's going to take a lot, and it's going to take a lot of work, both on Aeneas' part, but also the, the gods will be working uh, for him in this, and Z- Zeus." predicts I'm sorry Jupiter predicts that in the end uh, of course the, the result will be the foundation of a glorious city that will basically rule the world and give it justice and peace as the Virgil's famous lines to to, <clears throat> to spare the fallen and and tame the proud and Augustine you know, quotes these lines in the uh, in the City of God, and uh, he, he makes fun of it because you know Rome is not a perfect place. But if, if if any if there were any Christian who understood the great value of Roman peace and Roman civilization, it was in fact Augustine. But one has to remember, he writes the City of God after the sack of Rome in 410, when uh, when uh, they're they're extremely depressed. So so already we know that uh uh Jupiter has a plan just as Zeus has a plan in the Iliad but here the plan is not just to make things come all all, all right for uh, Agamemnon and the and the Greek warriors at Troy, here the pl- the plan is to make the world, the entire world, a better place because the the Romans will bring peace and justice and mercy into a, into a world full of violence and uh, horror. What's beyond the violence and horror, Doctor Fleming? Well, what will be, in Virgil's case, uh, what he sees beyond the violence, he sees uh, an Augustan regime, uh, a Roman empire built out of the ruins of a corrupt and failing Roman republic, and a Roman empire that will bring uh, the benefits of law to its subjects and will also impose peace and so all of these incredible arrogant rulers uh, both barbarian and civilized who have kept the world at war that Roman arms and Roman law will make it possible for ordinary people to lead uh, quiet and dignified and decent lives now uh, this may be uh, an idealized overstatement or an exaggeration but it is still, it is what Augustus thought he was doing, and it's what other people thought he was doing. Today, it's, no, today we just make fun of all that. Uh, oh, well, they, these were just cynical, rapacious uh, people who had no, no interest in that. that that's really not, not, uh, not true. You know, when uh, um, I've done a few lectures on Chesterton, and one of the things, you know, Chesterton, it's interesting, he gets virtually every fact of Roman history wrong, on the one hand, but he understands that the, that, that Rome cleansed the world of sickness and depravity. And so Roman religion, which is, you know, is a religion of idealism and of discipline and duty defeated the Carthaginian religion, uh, which sacrificed babies, you know, and, and uh, in fact, you were forced to sacrifice your own children. In that sense, the the uh, these the uh, the Phoenicians and Carthaginians are worse than the Aztecs. So uh, it is in, in, in his great essay in the Everlasting Man, the war between the war of gods and demons. He uh, uh, Chesterton better than most Roman historians. Chesterton understood that uh, the Roman triumph. So cleansed the world. It made it po- in, in Chesterton's view, it made it possible for the incarnation to take place because the world before the before the Roman Empire was such a filthy, depraved place. Uh, it, it, it would, in Chesterton's mind, it would it would be inappropriate. Now, now of course, I, th- I, th- I think I think we all realize that uh, the creator of the universe can do anything he wants to do, but that his plan. That the plan involved Greek culture and Roman civilization and law—it uh, cer- it, it certainly appears to be uh, that it was uh, his intention.
1: Hmm. Which book are which book are we in now, Dr. Fleming? Can you situate we're st- us?
0: We're still in Book One. We're still in Book One. In fact. Uh, and uh, we're talking largely about and in fact we won't leave book 1 today okay. we're talking we're talking about uh, J- uh Jupiter's prediction uh to uh Venus that everything will uh, uh, will work out and everything uh for the best uh Venus and Odysseus uh, Venus and Aeneas, excuse me uh do meet and again it's a, it's a very um it's a, it's, it's a it's a beautifully written scene uh, Aeneas needs to know a little bit about what he's facing and that is he needs to know that uh, that Carthage is being built that uh, maybe these people aren't going to be terribly friendly and that uh, he he needs to uh, he needs uh, intelligence he needs raw data and Venus, Pretending to be a local woman uh, provides the information. And so, but uh, unfortunately, uh, she reveals herself, as she leaves uh, her son, she reveals himself, she reveals himself who he is. That is, she, he knows it's his mother and poor Aeneas is, uh, it's again, it's, he can 't go home, his wife is dead his is is his uh his world is gone, but even his mother won't stay to reveal herself i mean he is he is uh he is an an alienated uh character if ever there was this is about line four hundred and so after she get, after she tells him that um he everything's going to work out fine that the the Carthaginians will take care of him, uh, that he, she then begins to walk away. She spake and as she turned away, her rosy neck flashed bright. From her head, her ambrosial tresses breathed celestial fragrance. Down to her feet fell her raiment. And in her step, she was revealed a very goddess. He knew her as his mother and as she fled, he pursued her with these words. Thou also so cruel, why do you mock your son so often with vain phantoms? In other words, why, it's like he's living in this nightmare dream world. All these terrible things happen to him, and he's got, a, he's got a divine protectress, but she won't even talk to him, mother to son. Why do you mock your son? Why am I not allowed to clasp hand in hand and hear and uh, you utter words that, that are not fake? because she's always pretending to be somebody else, much as Athena does in in the Odyssey. Thus he reproaches her and bends his step toward the city. So, again, this note of of anxiety and estrangement and unhappiness, such a strange note. Odysseus in similar circumstances, is always buoyed up by the sight of Athena and her. her even though he knows she's she's not uh, she's not really whom she appears to be, but then again, Ath- Athena's not the mother of Odysseus, and so even what he should be taking as a strong encouragement, he unfortunately uh, takes as a, as a kind of uh, reproach to him, a kind of insult. So the, she, she clearly uh, has maternal love, but it's maternal love that he cannot experience directly. It's like, you know, in a dream where, you know, if you, you, you see somebody like a dead, a dead relative or a dead loved one and you go to embrace them and they disappear. It, it, it's, it's, these, are, these are very depressing dreams. So we go on and we get a vision uh, Aeneas uh, sees, a, um, that, the, that the Carthaginians are building a city. And on the one hand, of course, he marvels at uh, how beautiful it is and how successful they are. And, uh, but on the other hand, it's a little depressing because the Carthaginians have already gone a long way toward establishing a home in the new world. It, you know they're they're sort of like a uh, American colonists building building their city on a hill, and uh, and while he is with his faithful friend Acates, uh, he he uh, he he can't he can't help envying them. He says, um, um, "Oh, about line four thirty-five, happy they whose walls already rise!" Cry Aeneas, lifting his eyes toward the city roofs. And amid the city was a grove, luxuriant in shade, the spot where first the Phoenicians uh, dug up the token which Juno had pointed out in the head of a spirited horse. So then he and then he sees that they're building a mighty temple, and he looks at all at the at the at the carved relief work, the sculptures in the temple, and it, surprisingly enough. He scans each object, he marvels at the city's fortune, the handicraft of the artist, and he sees in due order the battles of Troy, the warfare known by fame throughout the world, the sons of Atreus and Priam and Achilles, fierce in his wrath against both of them. And he stopped and weeping cried, What land, Achates, what tract on earth is not full of our sorrow? Behold, Priam, uh, of course, Priam uh, was killed, as we'll see in book two, killed very cruelly and, uh, by, uh, by the son of Achilles. Here, too, virtue has its to, t- due rewards. Um, that is, here, you know, in this depiction, through art, in this case, the, 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 the sculptural relief art on this Carthaginian uh, temple, You see the Trojans are getting their proper respect, and he says um, says in in, any case the most famous line in the work, "...sunt hic etiam sua premia laudi, sunt lacrimai rerum et mentem mortalia tangunt." And and a very difficult, very almost impossible uh, line to translate. Literally, it just says there are tears for misfortune. He actually, says there are tears for things, for the things we we go through in life, that that that, that they receive they receive pity, and the, the 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 sorrow, deathly sorrows, mortal sorrows touch the mind. And again, this is one of the roles of art. Here it's sculpture, but in the poem uh, Virgil's writing, it won't just be sculpture; it will be uh it will be uh it will it, it'll be uh the the commemoration of first the trojan and then of the roman spirit and the roman nobility and uh and it it it's it's told uh through the literary story later on and uh i think we we don't want to uh try to tell everything about uh the work after all and we're getting near to a point that we should close but you see, when when, they, when Dido meets the Trojans and they don't quite know what to expect from her, she has her own tale because as Wolf, we, we know that, you know, her husband was murdered by, uh, you know, a, a, a brother and that, you know, there's been treachery and deceit and cruelty back in Tyre, which is why she's here. And she says, you know, not, not inexperienced, not unacquainted with grief, I have learned how to help others." Now this is, this is, again, an amazingly Christian sentiment, that is, through suffering, through my own personal unhappiness, rather than becoming embittered by it, rather than becoming cruel and, and torture and taking it out on other people, which is an extremely common human uh, trait, you know, oh, this happened to me. I'm now I'm going to give it to you. Instead, no, Dido says because of my acquaintance with grief, I know how how to help. I know how to to succor uh, others, and namely, uh, in this case, uh, the Trojans, whom whom she admires uh, in uh, a great deal. So um, the just to just to hint at uh, the rest of the, the the story of Book One. Venus is concerned about whether Dido will give Aeneas a proper uh, welcome. And of course, it's clear that the handsome stranger has already affected Dido. I mean, he, in, in her mind, he is one of the two or three great men of human history. She already knows his story, and she's having it portrayed there uh, in this temple. And he it turns out to be handsome and brave and every, everything a lonely widow could hope for. And so she obviously already sees him as a potential spouse and co ruler of Carthage. But Venus, just to be sure, and, uh, pulls a trick. Uh, Aeneas wants his son, Eulus Ascanius, whose name, Eulus, by the way, is therefore the founder of the Julian family. So he's the, so uh, Eulus, son of Aeneas, son of Venus. This Eulus is the ancestor of Julius Caesar and of Augustus, and, you know, when I was a a, a dumb young Latin student, I thought that Virgil just made this stuff up. No, it's an extremely, it's a a story which the Romans had been telling for for hundreds of years, and the Julian family was not especially a notable family. It it was a patrician family, but they they were certainly not among the the five or six top patrician clans. So, uh, Ulysses, instead of sending the real Ulysses, she substitutes her son, Cupid, the the, uh, uh, this uh, adorable god of love, who takes the uh the form of Ulysses, and of course, when he sits in Dido's lap and she 's dandling him on her knee and he, and he and he is inspiring her he is filling her with desire for Aeneas you can 't help feeling sorry for dido and and you you have to you begin to ask yourself well is Dido are both Dido and Aeneas simply pawns in the hands of Jupiter and Venus? And the answer is no, because if Dido were not the type to fall in love, she wouldn't already be falling in love with Aeneas. The gods can only, in in Virgil's universe, the gods act only through people who already have the character. You don't take a a low-class coward and try to make him a great hero in battle. You take somebody who is already a skilled warrior who has shown his courage, and then you maybe pump him up a little bit through a, a little divine enthusiasm. In the same way that a person may work for 15, 20 years trying to be a good poet, and then he gets insp- divine inspiration, but the divine inspiration only comes to people who are actually uh, working hard and 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 deserve it. So this whole notion of you know fate versus free will, which has occupied so many theologians, and uh, I can think of uh, Martin Luther in particular and John Calvin, and they. Uh, Oh, and, and other, uh, other, some have emphasized the, uh, the overwhelming power of God that makes free will trivial, and others emphasize free will, which seems to diminish the power of God. For Virgil, just as for Aeschylus, and for, I believe, the true Christian understanding of Augustine, is that both positions are equally true. God is all-powerful and all-knowing, but through some mystery, we are equally, we have free will, and we, res- we respond uh, through free will and make choices on the basis of the kind of people we are. It's, it's more difficult to understand, but then the Trinity is not easy to understand. It's not easy to understand how, how Jesus can be all-man and Christ is all-God. It's not easy to understand, and Voltaire makes hilarious fun of it, uh, it's not easy to understand how uh, bread and wine can become the body and blood of Christ. But that's the nature of what a mystery is. A mystery is when two opposite statements can be made and they are simultaneously equally true because there's a paradox at the, at the center of all uh, being. Uh, certainly from uh, from the most profound Christian point of view. So uh, to conclude, our first book of the Aeneid is really a, a, a masterpiece of narrative it's complicated in in many ways we establish two brilliant characters aeneas and dido are 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 put forward we already see the kind of people we are we know that if aeneas has a weakness it's his sense of nostalgia his feeling of homelessness his his tendency toward despair we can see that dido a very but he's nonetheless a brilliant and accomplished leader we see Dido, she her weak spot as is that uh, she her tender regard for Aeneas uh, is it will come to displace her uh, sense of duty as a ruler, as the leader of her people. And so we have all of these things anticipated in, in one uh in just in one book of you know, a thousand lines or less than a thousand lines. So uh, that fact, 756 lines to be exact. And it's small wonder that no serious writer since in any, la- in any language or culture influenced by Rome, that is whether it's Ovid or Statius or uh, later on Dante or uh, Shakespeare, or especially Milton and, and the, the great writers of Italian epic, they have all uh, gone to Virgil's school, not only to learn the technique of how to, com- how to write and how to compose and how to put things together, but they've also followed him down the road toward a deeper understanding of human suffering and human tragedy. And this is, and this is uh, really uh, one of the great gifts of Virgil to our civilization.
1: Well, I think that was an excellent layout of book one, Dr. Fleming, and with allusions to the other books that, that we were, we're obviously going to get to over time, we're not going to be doing this 12 straight in a row. So for our listeners who are, are worried that you know we are not going to do anything on Christianity and classical culture except Virgil for the next year, uh, that's not the case. Uh, Dr. Fleming just wanted to get us started on this series, and uh, we'll obviously keep coming back to it uh, over time. Good. Absolutely. As always, thanks for your time, Dr. Fleming. All right. Thank you.
0: Thank you for listening to a podcast of the Fleming Foundation. All rights are reserved. These podcasts are made possible by our paid members who ensure that our hosts and writers can contribute regularly, not on a volunteer basis. If you have any questions about anything you heard on today's episode or if you wish to acquire rebroadcast rights, please email podcasts at Fleming dot Foundation. Until next time. On behalf of all of us here at the Foundation, make the most of a dark age.